reconcile men back to God. It's important that we understand where the world has been up to this point with regard to that very thing. From a very Jewish perspective, they had known a monotheistic religion. They had understood that God was supremely sovereign. They had understood that God uh, was the creator. They had understood that God had actually met with them in the tabernacle and in the temple. They had the law, they had the blessings of the law, they had the curses of the law. And so they understood that there was a possibility to have a relationship with God himself. But they understood it from a very specific place. And so the disciples, as they travel with Jesus, Jesus is going to do something that seems out of the ordinary, seems even to be uh, a little bit contrary to the purpose, seems at first glance uh, that maybe it's even a little harsh as he deals with the disciples and their response. But we have before us a dispensational question. And I want to give you a little uh, heads up. A lot of people don't like big words. That's okay. Let me help you understand it maybe from a little bit uh, easier perspective. Dispensation or dispensational is a theological word that we use to describe the ways that God has worked with mankind throughout history. And so now you understand why I just told you that the Jews, from their dispensation, understood via the law. They understood via the sacrifices, via the temple ceremonies, via the feast days, all of those things. They understood and related to God via the Old Testament dispensation. They also understood through the Abrahamic covenant. And so the easiest way for us to get a grasp on what I'm trying to share with you this morning, I believe what Scripture is sharing with us, is that God has throughout history had various economies whereby he has dealt with mankind. And so you can change that word to economy if you like. And here's how you can understand that. In our economy, we use the U.S. dollar. Amen? That's the currency of the realm here in America. And if you go to China, you would be using a yen. If you go to Austria, you'd be using a shilling that is based in the European Union's euro. You, you would have all of these ways to communicate one with another and purchase in that economy via that which is the coin of the realm. Now, just spiritualize that, because it was that during the time of the Old Testament, you used the coinage of the law and the coinage of the temple sacrifices and the feast days, and the coinage is about to change. It's about to become the age of grace. And the coin of the realm now is grace. It's shifted from the law and the covenants to grace. And so now you're going to see, as Jesus embarks on this journey, what he intends to do. And the disciples don't quite get that yet. They're still stuck a little bit in the Old Testament covenantal economy or dispensation. And so this morning, two questions. The first one will be dispensational. It'll be about the economy. 
And so would you pray with me? Father, thanks for this day. Lord, thank you for the rain that you've brought. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, your blessings, your love. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for grace. And God, this morning as we study your word, would you help us to understand and know, God, what you intend to communicate. God, these things that you wrote down through your Holy Spirit, that we might understand your character, your nature, your wonder, your beauty. God, we love you, and we thank you for the time that you made for us to be here. Use it now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 51, if you remember, And now it came to pass that when time had come for him to be received up, so there's there's the time change, if you will. We have a daylight savings time change notice right here. The time had come. You see, from a human perspective, from a human perspective, these things seem to be almost accidental. Maybe, maybe they were somewhat circumstantial. But from God's perspective, what Jesus is now going to do was the plan. It was from the beginning of time to this moment that Jesus now embarks on the journey to Jerusalem. And as I shared with you last time, the uh, book of Isaiah clearly declared that Jesus would, the Messiah would, set his face like flint on Jerusalem. He would not be moved. And so that he set uh, steadfastly his face to go towards Jerusalem. There was one goal, one goal alone. From here on out, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. Everything that is recorded in the remainder of the book of this gospel is Jesus heading to the cross is Jesus dying on the cross is Jesus bringing about the dispensation of grace so as they embark on the journey we find verse 52 and sent messengers before his face and that word face is used in this context to describe one's physical appearance your face was you during that time so if someone saw your face, they saw you. And so he's sent before his face. And as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans. And we'll look at this in great detail because it's extremely important that you understand it. They're a mix of Jew and Gentile. To prepare for him. But they did not receive him. Please circle the word because. Because, because his face was set for the journey towards Jerusalem. That was a problem for the Samaritans. A huge problem for the Samaritans. But it also tells you exactly how huge the love of God is. That the first place that the Lord would journey would be towards those who hate the Jews who despise the Jews, who to this day are very unfriendly towards the Jews. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Do you see the old covenant? Do you see the old dispensation? Do you see the old way? 
You see, the old way was if you weren't a Jew, you were God's enemy. And there was little chance that you would actually have a relationship with God if you were not Jewish. They were it. They were the only monotheistic religion on the face of the earth. They were the only ones who God made a covenant with. They were the only ones that God had handed the Torah, the Old Testament to them, the Tanakh, the whole of it, the Torah, the first five books of Moses. They were the only ones that met God personally. The high priest would do that on the Day of Atonement. They had the only way for you to actually know the true and the living God. And because of that, they also had God's abilities and God's favor and God's justice and judgment, often in their behalf and sometimes against them when they were disobedient. And so he says to them, he turns and he rebukes them. Notice the change. You can see the dispensational change in these few verses. You do not know what manner of spirit you are. He's going, guys, things are changing. To quote Bob Dylan, the times they are a-changing. There was an old way, there's now going to be a new way. There was the old dispensation, the covenants that were made with the Jewish people, and God was now going to fling open the doors to as many as received Him. To them He gave the ability to become the sons and daughters of God. He was going to shift from a very narrow, extremely small, genetically unique group of people called the Jewish people to the arms of the cross open wide to the whole world. He says, you don't know what manner of spirit you are. Now remember, the spirit's not been given to the church yet. That will happen in Acts 2. For the Son of Man, notice what it says, did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. I I didn't come to to destroy them. I came to save them. And so they went to another village. And so we have this question. And it's hidden there in verse 54. Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now remember where they were. They were up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They had just come, they had met with this retreat with Moses and Elijah and Jesus and Father God. They had come back, they're filled with the Spirit. And so it would actually make some sense that the disciples would have gone, Man, you know, we got the power of Elijah with us now, so let's just fry them. Because God, that's what you always do, you just fry people. From their perspective, there was some understanding that they had that when people were disobedient, they got in trouble with God. Amen? You had the judgment, you had the justice of God, and in fact, God had punished His own people. And you can understand that very clearly if you study the book of Amos with us. As we look at what happened to the Jewish people, they were God's chosen people, and yet God spanked them hardcore. Amen? Including wiping them out nearly in their entirety. And ultimately, only a remnant would be taken captive to Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And so, God meant what He said, God did what He said He would do, and God brought down fire from heaven if you were disobedient. So from their perspective, the old dispensation was, you mess with God, you get fried. We believe you're the Messiah, we believe that you're the Son of God, and so you must want to barbecue people. 
That was their simple understanding at the time. And so as they began to head south, as they began to look towards what would be happening next, uh, Jesus is going to go swinging for the fences. He's not going to stop part way. And I want to give you a little sense of what was going on here. And as you look up here at this map up in the upper area, there's Mount Hermon up there. There's Capernaum. That's where Jesus was headquartered. There's his hometown of Nazareth. And this whole area between Nazareth and Jerusalem was Samaria. And that was an area that was very, very important to the Jewish people at one point in time. And in fact, it is in Samaria that you find all kinds of history of the old dispensation. And so it is extremely important that you get why this was such a big deal. Because it was to the Jewish people that there was actual competition that was now occurring with the Samaritans and the Jews. And so what Jesus actually came to do was to say, look, doesn't matter whether you're a Samaritan, doesn't matter whether you're a Jew, doesn't matter whether you're a Greek Gentile, doesn't matter whether you're a Roman citizen, it doesn't matter. The cross is going to reconcile everybody. And so the first place he goes, in essence, is into enemy territory. Located there in Samaria are Mounts Ebal and Gerizim, and you know them from the book of Judges, and if you remember your history there, uh, Joshua tells us, Deuteronomy actually declared, the Lord said to the Jewish people, He says, I want you to go and go to Mount Gerizim, and you pronounce the blessings, and go to Mount Ebal, and you pronounce the curses there in Deuteronomy 11. And so on one mountain, make sure that you tell them how good God is, and on the other mountain, you tell them exactly what will happen if they're disobedient. And so this was the land that God allowed the Jewish people to be kind of displaced from. It was the home place of Abraham. This is where Shechem is located. And so the Abrahamic covenant was confirmed. So the Jewish people had great affinity for this land. And so when the Assyrians came, King Esherhadron, when he came into that area and dominated the whole north, which would have been Israel, ten tribes... What he did was displace them and then brought in Samaritan Gentiles to interbreed with the Jews. He brought in the Assyrians, excuse me. And so from them, the Assyrians and Jewish people, basically half-breeds to the Jews of an Assyrian and a Jewish person came the Samaritans. And dead in the middle of this land is the home place of Abraham, the tomb of Joseph, the grave of Rachel, Jacob's well. And now all of these things, there at the foot of Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, were now in the hands of the enemy. If you go there today, it's the home of Nablus. Uh, which is one of the strongholds of Hamas, Fatah, Yasser Arafat had his home there for a while. And so it is still a place of great controversy. And so in that area between these two mountain peaks, 
you find, interestingly enough, what happened was, because you have half Jew and half Gentile Assyrians that are now this Samaritan group of people, they took up kind of a halfway Jewish way of life. And so what they did was they built their own temple on the top of Mount Gerizim. And it conflicted and competed with the temple in Jerusalem. They had their own Mount Moriah, the place that was supposed to be where Abraham would have sacrificed Isaac. That's on top of Mount Gerizim, square in the middle of Samaria. So you can imagine from a Jewish perspective for the disciples to be traveling with Jesus and they go to Samaria, it makes every sense in the world that the Samaritans didn't want anything to do with a Jewish rabbi. And so there are temples right there. Why are you going to Jerusalem? You see, they didn't believe that Jerusalem held anything special because from a Samaritan's perspective, the temple's right up there on top of Mount Gerizim. Abraham's place where he would have sacrificed, Mount Moriah, is right up there on top of Mount Gerizim. If they were heading towards Jerusalem, that was an affront to the Samaritans. And during that period of time, they had become really mortal enemies. And if you know a little bit of your history, and it's important to do so, as you look forward a little bit, uh, those are the two mountains. You have Mount Ebal on one side. Shechem was dead in the middle of these two, about a mile deep from that canyon that you're looking at. The top of one mountain would be the place where the blessings would flow forth from, and so the Samaritans build a temple there. On the other hill, on the other mountain, Mount Ebal would be where the curses came from, and so they also built a temple up there. And so if you were a good person, you went over onto Mount Gerizim and you were pronounced a blessing. And if you were a bad person, you went to Mount Ebal and you received a curse. And so this was the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why the Jews hated the Samaritans. They had basically taken Abraham's birthplace and they took it in about 800 B.C. as the Assyrians came and conquered the north and all of that time that went forward and it had been contested for the last 700 years. And so this was a huge deal that Jesus didn't do the Jewish thing and travel along the Jordan River Valley down along the Jordan River, through Perea, which was the normal path, and then ascend the hill into Jerusalem. Take the long way, but stay out of Samaria. Because the Samaritans were trouble. And so by the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, the, the Greek ruler that at that time ruled that particular area of the world, and by the time that happens, uh, he has established... Samaria as a capital city. He's actually said, you know what, the temple on Mount Gerizim is even better than the one in Jerusalem. And so, as far as he was concerned, the headquarters of the Jewish people, he actually confirmed that it was Mount Gerizim. And so, as all of this is un unfolding, Jesus is saying, look, I came from my mortal enemies. I, I came to seek and save that which was lost. And so as he 
enters into that place that ultimately, if you read the book of Nehemiah, if you remember, there was a kind of not so nice guy in there called Sanballat the Horonite. He was kind of a problem for Nehemiah as Nehemiah came back to rebuild Jerusalem. You remember that story? Guess where Horon is? It's at the foot of Mount Gerizim as well. It was a Samaritan stronghold. And so, from a Jewish perspective, Jesus was traveling first smack dab in the middle of enemy territory. He was going to take the love of God there. And so as you look at these places, what would ultimately happen under uh, the time of the Maccabean Rebellion, and this is a group of Jewish warriors that basically rose up against the Samaritan temple. So now we're about 200 years from the time that we're studying here in Luke. At that point in time, the Maccabeans, under Jacob Herennius, rises up. They destroy that temple. That temple is not there anymore. And it's been hotly contested since. And unto this day, back in the year 2000, that is the tomb of Joseph. Still contested to this day. The Arabs destroyed it. It took an act of the UN to keep them from completely destroying it and for them to keep the Oslo Accords. And so what happened in that final rebellion in about 200 BCE was that the Jews actually destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. It lies in ruin to this day. But the Samaritans didn't forget the Samaritans continued to worship there in spite of the fact that there was no temple there. And in fact, the Jews celebrate the destruction of the Samaritan temple and the rededication of what happened during the Maccabean rebellion in Jerusalem as the temple was defiled there by Antiochus Epiphanes. He took and erected a statue of Zeus and he slaughtered a pig in the holy place at that point in time, because the temple on Mount Gerizim, the Samaritan temple was destroyed, and the Jewish temple was rededicated, you all know it, it was on the 25th, 25th of Keslev in December of our year, that is where you got Hanukkah. And so that period of time that was this, this incredible mixture of just warfare and competing temples and the Jewish people hating the Samaritans and the Samaritans hating the Jews, it was absolutely deep-seated. It was ingrained into every single Jew. So now you understand why John, well, it's barbecue. Let's just kill I mean, after all, I mean, for the last 700, 800 years, They've been trying to take over. They don't like you. They hate you. They made a competing temple. They can't even be of God. Why would you go there? Because that's what grace does. And Jesus then begins to correct them. And notice a couple of things here. Instead of taking the Perean bypass going along the Jordan, Jesus goes right where he knows he's not welcome as a Jewish rabbi. And he says, Lord, 
James and John do? Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and blot them out just like Elijah did? Notice what Jesus says to them. You do not know of what spirit you are. Because all that old stuff, that's why I'm going to Jerusalem. Because nobody ever got saved that way. Their sins were put away. Their sins were stored up. They were espunged for a time. They were as right as one could be with God. But Abraham waited in faith. Joseph waited in faith. Rachel, Ruth, waited in faith. I'm going to complete it. We're not mad at the Samaritans. We want the Samaritans to get saved. They're not our mortal enemies. They're your brothers and sisters. And one day, I'm going to join them all together as I offer my life a sacrifice for many. So he's saying, guys, you you don't know what spirit you are. There's a new dispensation. The question, the answer to it is, oh no, don't do that. I came to save them. Yeah, this history has been brutal. It's been horrible. The Son of Man, he says, didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And as you read that, he was basically saying, we'll bring fire, but it's going to be a different kind of fire. It's going to be a Pentecostal fire. It's going to be flaming tongues of fire. It is going to be that they are going to become saved and you are going to become brothers and sisters. There's going to be fire, but not the kind of fire that you've been used to calling down. It's going to be a different kind of fire. And so the Lord rebukes them. That's the same word that he used for casting out demons. He rebuked the demon. He says, look, this is no, not going to happen. And so they simply moved to another village. And we know because of Matthew's gospel that it is likely from that point they they turned from that area of Samaria and did actually follow the Jewish, normal Jewish track that would have been along the Jordan River Valley and then up into Jerusalem because we meet a scribe and they would have been found in the Jewish areas. And so now the second question. And it is a discipleship question. The character of our discipleship, the cost of our discipleship comes in view very quickly for us. You see, when Jesus took the disciples, and it's important again that we understand what discipleship means. It seems to be a fancy theologic word, but it simply means follower. So the easiest way for us to understand what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to actually walk with Jesus? As I've shared with you, the Great Commission doesn't say go save people. It says go and make disciples of all nations. Now, of course, it's important that you first get saved before you can be a disciple. That's the first step. But discipleship is so much more than simply being saved. You see, a lot of people are actually looking for what we affectionately call fire insurance. They want to not go to hell. 
Okay? I think that's most everybody. If they really believe that there is a hell, most people don't want to go there. I think it's safe to assume. They kind of want that relationship to be a very narrow bandwidth, an extremely small portion, something that you can stick in a box, put in the back of the closet, and when time comes for you to take your last breath, you pull it out and say, look, I'm going to heaven. But that's not what God wants. He wants disciples. And if you're going to be a disciple, it's going to cost you your life. It's not something that just simply happens here on Sunday or happens on Wednesday night or maybe when you do your devotions every other week. To be a disciple of Christ means that you are taught by someone else and that you follow their leading. And so, Next in view, we have a discipleship question. Verse 57, And now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, this is out of the group of people that are around Jesus, the first is a question, says to him, Lord, I will notice, follow you. I want to be your disciple. You could use the word apprentice is another good word. If you enter an apprenticeship program, you're going to be taught by someone else. Amen? You're going to follow them around. Paul said, see what manner of life I live. As I live out that manner of life, other people should be able to follow my example. So hence the character and the cost of our discipleship. It is very specific what we're supposed to be as children of God. Amen? We're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Everybody understands that. We're supposed to be walking in the power of the Spirit. Everybody understands that. We are supposed to be haters of evil and lovers of good. You get the picture. When you talk about being a follower of Christ, it's not simply, yep, Jesus is my Savior. Though that is the first step, it is not remotely all there is to being a disciple. Being a disciple is to be a servant. Being a disciple is to be led by the Spirit. Being a disciple is to be doing good when people do bad to you. Being a disciple is to speak evil of no one. Being a disciple is to love at all times. Being a disciple is this huge, broad, now spirit-led control that happens over our lives as we follow the Lord. So the question here is a discipleship question. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then another said, he said to another, so first one asked Jesus, the second one Jesus asked him, Follow me. But he, the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. I want to break these things down one at a time. But notice what's going on here. This is discipleship 101. What's keeping you from being a real follower of Christ? Start looking at these things from that perspective because there are three different excuses here as to why I can't 
follow Christ. Not forget being saved, though that has to happen. It's not what Jesus is talking about exclusively here. Saying, following me, you're going to have to make me first. None of these guys were willing to do that. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. I don't want to be careful before we get too far along here. Jesus is not talking that you should be disrespectful to your parents. He's not saying there's anything wrong with having money. He's not talking about those human things. He's talking about who is preeminent in your life. Who is first? Who's in control? And another also said, Lord, I will follow you. Notice, I will follow you. Follow me. I will follow you. Three times that basic phrase is used. But let me, notice again, first go and bid farewell to those who are at my house. Do you see how there was something in each of them that said, I want to follow you, but only if. I want to follow you, but i got other things to do. I want to follow you, but there are some other more important things than following you. And family, to be a true follower of Jesus, Jesus has to be number one. It doesn't mean you can't be saved. It doesn't mean you won't be a child of God. But if you really want to be a disciple, He's got to be first. He wants to be first. And so in each of these, Jesus says to this one, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. This seems kind of harsh at first, but I don't really think it is. I, I think the Lord was simply trying to illustrate for us how easy it is for us to get carried away by the concerns of life. How easy it is for us to look at things that go on in our life and say, you know what, man, uh, my farming is more important than Jesus. And again, not to say that it isn't important that you do a good job at work or that you earn money. Those things are all important. But there are all kinds of considerations in life. Let's face it, we all have considerations in life, amen? Amen. If you got up and if you happened to live in Arrow Bear this morning, your consideration was how, how to move that ice. Okay, that was your consideration this morning. If you live down where we do in the banana belt, it was, man, look at that blue sky. Thank you, God, that there's no snow. You, you, you have considerations. There are things that occupy your mind, and they should. They're not bad things. None of these things were bad things, okay? Make a point to see that. There's nothing wrong, certainly nothing wrong with burying your father. There, there's nothing wrong with taking care of your family. There's nothing wrong with having some possessions. There is absolutely nothing wrong with being kind and being nice to people and, and making sure that you do things properly. But if it keeps you from following Jesus, it's out of order. Jesus is supposed to be number one. He's supposed to be our first consideration. And so let's look at these three considerations here that 
we could each think on. And notice the financial considerations in the first guy's case. He was concerned about whether he was going to have, apparently, whether Jesus read his heart or whether it was implied. But the first guy basically says, look, wow, you don't have a place to lay your head. You you don't have a a money bag. You, You don't have no home. That was a hindrance. That was his consideration. He says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go, but he becomes immediately disillusioned when he says to him, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have any of those things. Will you follow me then? You see the question that's implied? Are you going to follow me? Or is that going to keep you from following me? Are you, are you going to give up the moment you hear that? And so the Lord sees a weak spot in this man's soul. The financial considerations were going to keep him from following Jesus. Again, please don't misinterpret this passage as is sometimes done. God meets all of our needs. You're supposed to care about whether your bills are paid. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those things having supremacy over Christ. They're supposed to be second or third or fourth or tenth. Somewhere down the line. Jesus is first. And then you'll handle your money correctly. Then it'll be in the proper perspective. Then you'll have those things the way they should be and they won't be a hindrance to you. But if He's not first then it doesn't matter how much money you have. It'll never be enough. And so the first man has a problem in that area that we would call, uh, maybe you could put it, possessions. He says, I I want my stuff. Notice the second man. And as you look at these things, you, you begin to go, wow, the Lord was hitting us where we always get hit. Possessions, passions, and position. He gets the three big ones. Notice the family considerations in the second guy's life. This this man's issue was his passion. And again, Jesus is not preaching that you need to hate your family. That you need to disrespect your mom and dad. That you ought to toss your kids out on their ear the first chance you get and let them fend for themselves. He's not saying that. He's saying, am I first? Because if you're going to follow me, I need to be first. He says, follow me. And he says, well, let me first go and bury my father. And from the language here in the original text, it doesn't appear that his father is actually dead yet. But his father is maybe of ill health. And he's going to die. So who knows how long that was going to happen. Is there anybody in here who's made excuses for why you can't serve Jesus and you just list these long things and they're all things that haven't happened yet. But you expect them to. So I'll serve the Lord when all these things are perfect. Can I give you a little hint? Your life will never get like that. If there's anything there, you'll always have a reason to be less than sold out for Christ. There's always going to be stuff that's going to come up that you can go, well, you know, I've got to take care of this. I've got to take care of that. 
Can I tell you that if you're really a follower of Christ, you'll still get to take care of those things. It's just that Jesus is going to take the first, the first seat. You'll actually do them better following the Lord. You'll actually be better at ministering to your family. You see, for him, the issue is his passions. And there's nothing wrong with it. And basically, Jesus forces him to declare himself. If you go to college, especially if you're playing sports or you have you have to you have to sign a letter of intent. I'm going to go to this school. Okay? You get all these letters. They come in the mail, and you know all these offers for scholarships, and you know you can be on this team or that team, and you sign a letter of intent. Jesus was saying to him, "Dude, you need to sign a letter of intent. Are you going to come with me and follow me, or are you going to follow the world?" You don't get to pick two. You only get to pick one. Follow me, he says. He had his excuse ready. He says, look, my family responsibilities are greater than my desire to follow you. And again, I'm going to beat this until you're sick of hearing it. It's not that family is unimportant but family needs to fit in the place that the Lord has for you for family to fit. It can't be out of proportion because you can always find excuses to go visit Aunt Susie or Uncle Bob or Grandma and Grandpa so much so that you end up not having time for Jesus. So he's no longer Lord. He's not Master. He's not the leader that you're following. He's just simply another thing on your to-do list. And so this guy uh, had his passions that he needed to follow after. And then finally, and in closing, the next guy gives his. He says, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell that are in my house. You see, the custom of the day was you never did anything without explaining it to your family. There was no spur of the moment, on the fly thinking in this culture. Now, we're living a little differently today, and we do those kind of things, but at that day and time, it was considered a breach of the Ten Commandments for you to not discuss everything with your family. It was bad form, as it were. And so the position was, I need to do these things in the right order. I've got to do this first and then this. And, oh, by the way, Lord, you're way down here below all these other things. First and foremost, I've got to go ask Mommy if it's okay. I've got to see if Daddy will let me go. Because I'm not sure. And again, I'm not trying to mock here. I'm just simply giving you an example. You could say the same thing. Well, Mom, if you don't want me to go to church, I guess I won't go to church. Dad, if you, if you think I should stay home, then I'm just going to stay home. Grandma, Grandpa, what do you think? You see, your, your parents may actually have a different opinion. They may actually tell you, well, I don't know why you're going to the church in the first place. And so you begin to listen to the other voices that are available to you to hear. Amen? If you're listening to our culture right now, we're all nuts for being here. That's the deal. I'm completely lunatic because I don't understand all the social things, how they've transformed in the last 2,000 years, and so we should change what the Word of God says and do what the world says. That's the world's way right now. You see, Jesus is way down the list in most people's lives in the world. 
and even in a lot of Christians' lives. He's just something on the, the list of positions. God wasn't saying you can't go, you know, go to your parents' funeral. That, again, it's just that's ludicrous. Even Elisha and Elijah, if you remember, he says, "Yeah, go bury your parents. Do whatever. Just don't dilly dally. Let's get on with it." But even while he was volunteering to go forward, he was basically given an excuse of why he wanted to go backwards. Been mankind's problem for a long time. First John chapter two. Put in a little bit different context, but the same three things. You see, the third man's issue was his position in life. You know, I, I want to make sure, you know, I've got this. And, and basically, these last two guys, they pretty much said, me first. I got to go do this. I need to do that. Here's what has to happen first. These three areas are passion, position, and possessions. And it says there in verse 15, 1 John chapter 2, Do not agapeo, agapeo, love like you should only love people and God. Do not love the world that way. The things in the world. For if anyone agapeos, the world, the agape of the Father is not in him. You see, you can't. It's actually a spiritual impossibility to have two gods. Because what he's saying here is, the only way that we love like that is loving people like God loves people and loving God himself. And these guys had care and concern that crossed over that normal concerns for the things of life that you should have. We need to be great in business. We need to pay our bills on time. We need to make sure that we're honoring our fathers and our mothers. We need to have the right view, if you will, of how we should interact with people so they get the right impression about the God that we serve. Those things are all true. But you got to love God supremely. And you have to love others like God loves them. And that means the Lord is first. For all that is of the world, verse 16 says, the lust of the flesh, and you can see these same three things in this passage. The lust of the eyes, everything that you can see, everything that you feel, everything that's inside of you, and the pride of life, everything that other people might say about you because they see you. You see it? Passion, possession, positions. You, you see, when you see those things, those things are actually not of Father God. They're of the world. You, you see the character of our discipleship and the cost of our discipleship. The character is the character of God Himself. The character is the character of Christ. And the cost is everything. You trade in your life for the new life that you have in Christ. And so as Jesus embarks on this journey, and he answers first the dispensational question, he says, I'm going to go to my mortal enemies. And then the, the second question, the discipleship question, he says, hey, if we're going to do this, we need to be all in, 100%. Those two questions tie together. Because you can't 
answer the first one affirmatively because if you're going to go where you're going to be hated and spitefully used, as Jesus will say shortly, sent amongst wolves like a sheep, you see, if you're not all in, when that happens, you're going to be all out. If you're not going to be fully engaged in being who you are in Christ, then you're ultimately going to be very little engaged in being a follower. You're just going to be kind of in the world. And so he says, look, guys, from the get-go, you need to know something. I came to seek and save that which is lost. I came for my mortal enemy. I came for Judas. And the only way we can reach Judas is if we're not holding anything back. No passion, no possession, no position, nothing can be ahead of Jesus. If we do that, Lord only knows what we could accomplish for the kingdom. I know this, the kingdom will come a lot quicker if we're sold out for the Lord than if we're just kind of dilly-dallying in the world. So to answer the first question is to answer the second question. Came for everybody, and I need to be 100% in. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. Lord, thank You for Your Word. God, thank You for the, the power that Your Word has to transform us and shape us. And Lord, probably no one in here, myself included, God doesn't need to move you just a tad higher up the up the ladder, God, in our lives. We want to be counted as 100% in. Lord, we don't want to hold anything back. We want to do and accomplish all that you have for us. Lord, we want to see your kingdom come and your will be done. We want to experience your power. Lord, we want to reach the lost. Lord, we want to seek after those who hate us. Lord, we want to be able to withstand the battle. And so, Lord... Pray that you would continue to use us, Lord. Thank you for the examples of these these three men, Lord, the disciples who didn't quite get it, Lord. So we know that you understand when we don't quite get it. But God, we also pray that you would help us to walk just a little bit closer with you this week. We love you. We praise you. We bless you. And God, as we leave this morning and give in tithes and offerings, we pray that you would just simply bless them. Use them for your kingdom. Bless us as your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.